Pastor Len Andrews from the WOW Ministries with today's message, The Life of the Believer, Part 15, The Passover, Part 2. We continue the series in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, The Life of the Believer, Part 15, The Passover, Part 2. And as we continue, we continue from last week and we directly go to the scripture where we left off last week. And in Exodus chapter 12, let's start reading in verse 8. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 8. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 8. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire, With unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. With the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Stop right there. Now there is just a lot that we are going to cover here this morning. And from verses 8 through 13, we are going to try to get through all of it. There's so much here just packed within these few short verses, and I hope to get through all of it this morning. Go with me all the way back to verse 8, and let's look at what that says, and let's break it down. It says this, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now, what I want to do this morning is I'm going to come to the latter part of that verse when we get to it, and it's a few verses away. But the part where it says, it shall be roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. I'm going to come back to that when we cover that in Scripture, but I want to cover the first part of that verse right now. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. Do you know that in the New Testament, it actually talks about this? It talks about this in a very specific way. And Jesus had to address this. He had to address this because many of the disciples that he had at that time were falling away. And even it made a lot of them think. And he actually comes to the 12 disciples that remained. And he says, do you want to leave too? And they said, where shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Well, what was said before that, that made all those disciples fall away and all of them walk with him no more? Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. 
And I want to cover a few verses here. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 48. John chapter 6. The best way to find it, the first book in the New Testament is Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 6 and verse 48. Remember, we are talking about the lamb being roasted in the fire and eating it, eating the flesh of the lamb. John chapter 6, verse 48. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Then he goes on to say in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now listen, pay attention. And the bread that I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You see that? So he talks about the flesh. And so they ask him the question, because it would naturally pop up to everybody who was fleshly, they would ask this question, and they come to him with it. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So he responds, verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see what he was doing here? He was talking and he was confirming what was being spoken of in Exodus chapter 12, where they said that they were to eat that lamb. They were to eat that lamb. How were they to eat it? They were to eat it roasted in the fire. Every bit of it, all of it. The legs, the entrails, the whole inward parts, every bit of it was to be eaten. It was to be consumed. Okay? And so now, here he is talking to them, and he says, you must eat my flesh. But it was in a different way. What was he referring to? What do we do every first of the month? We do communion, do we not? And in that sense, we also take inwardly, we receive it into ourselves, that body and that blood of the Lord, which was a type and a symbol in the Old Testament of the Passover. Are you following me? Okay? So when you understand this, let's go now even in a deeper way to understand this. Because you have to realize that not only does Jesus need to be consumed by you, you really truly need to consume him in order for you to produce fruit. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in this aspect, go with me now to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Because he, he gives us an understanding as to what his life, his flesh, really is. It is a seed. And I want you to understand it. Matthew chapter 13. Let's start reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 12 told them that they must eat the flesh of that lamb. Jesus said that those disciples that would follow him must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And now in Matthew 13, he gives us a better understanding of this. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. On that same day, Jesus went out of the house, and he sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? So in understanding this, he was talking that the seed that was given, that was planted, is planted into four different hearts. Okay? Four different hearts. And when that seed was planted, it produced a result over a period of time. Okay? Now, in understanding this, you might say, well, what does all this mean? What is the seed? How do we understand this? Well, he goes on to give an explanation of it. Because they ask him this question. Before we get to the understanding of it and the explanation, they come to him and they ask him this. Why do you speak to them in parables. He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then he says a few more words to them, and then he gives them the explanation of the parable of the sower. And this is what he says in verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, stop right there. The word of the kingdom is what? The word of God. The word of life. The word in general, right? The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was the word that became flesh? That's right. Jesus was. So in all essence, what he is saying is the seed that he spoke was the word. And as the word went into four hearers who had four different hearts, this was the result. And so he goes on to explain it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Do you see that? 
We have to receive the word into us. When you came to know Christ, you received him into your heart, right? We need to receive it within us. And I'm telling you right now, there are four different hearts that are listed here. If you are not the last one, you really are not Christ. So I'll just briefly explain them. The first heart is a hard heart. It's a hard heart that cannot receive anything into it. When the word goes out, it does not receive. Why? Because it is hard-hearted. What about Pharaoh? He was a perfect example of this, right? The Bible says he had a hard heart. He could not receive the word when Moses gave it to him. From the very get-go, he was very hostile to the word of God. When Moses went up to him and said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. He says, Who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let his people go. He was hard-hearted. He did not receive it. That might be some of you here today. You are hard-hearted because people have done you wrong in the past, because your heart has accumulated hardness over the many years where you've taken a lot of flack. You have taken things that have come at you left and right. And because of that, you've been hard-hearted because of those things. You will not forgive. There's bitterness. There's all kinds of hatred within you. And because of that, you cannot receive the word. Whenever the word is going out, Boy, you cringe. Whenever the word goes out, you feel funny and you don't like it. When the word goes out, you feel conviction upon you. When the word goes out, you can't sit still because the word is there. And I'm telling you, that is one who receives the word, but it cannot penetrate his heart. The second one is one where when the seed goes in, that person, you know what? He hangs around for a while. He hangs around for a while, and the word, it, it takes a little bit of root, but it doesn't go very deep. That person, they might receive the word and they say, yeah, you know what, this Jesus thing, it sounds pretty good. Sounds really good. And they hear everybody talking about how much joy they have. They hear everybody talking about how, how they're, uh, they're, they're just so abundantly blessed because of the Lord, and they have so many good things because of the Lord. They hear this, they say, yeah, I want to try it. But there's a problem. When you really start following the Lord, persecution comes. Trials come. Tribulations come. Hard times come. And when your faith is tested, if you are not rooted in the Lord, you're going to fall away. That's exactly what happens to this person. The third type of person. The third type of person is one who receives the word among the thorns. They receive the word, and the word is within them. They hear it, and they receive it. But there's a problem. The Bible says the deceitfulness of riches comes in, and it chokes out that word. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad so many of you are here today. And I'm going to be glad uh, two months down the road that many of you are going to be here in the Sunday service and the Wednesday service you say, well, why do you, why do you say it like that? That's kind of odd that you say that. You know why? Because this is tax time. This is the time when people in the, uh, on the reservations are getting per capita. And they make money their God. And you know what happens? You don't see them at Sunday services. You don't see them on Wednesdays. You know why? Because they got a whole bunch of money, and when they have a choice between the Word and going out and spending their money and having their fun and doing what they want to do, uh, the Word is choked out because of the deceitfulness 
of riches and the worldly way. And so I'm thankful that all of you are here this morning. But that's the third heart. The fourth one is one that is open and receptive. One that has come to his last point in life and says, I'm nothing without the Lord. When you are down so low, you have no choice but to look up. These are the type of people that when they hear the word, it produces fruit within them. You see the change. They are no longer that old person they used to be. They are changed continually, and God is working on them day after day after day. They are not afraid to hear the word, that when the word comes, it brings conviction, and they are happy for that, that they might change their ways and be pleasing unto the Lord. But it all starts one way that they receive the lamb, they partake of the lamb, and the lamb comes within them, and they are new. They are never the same. And so we can see that going all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, the first thing that they had to do was they had to receive the lamb. They had to eat the lamb. And so, just as they had to receive him, there was one other thing they had to do. They had to be in the house to do all these things. Now let me show you something here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Or some of your translations say, a new creation. Okay? Now pay attention to those words. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, doesn't that show that we need to be in Christ? Just as they were in the house and were protected, we also need to be in Christ. We need to be committed to Him. We need to be um, totally abolishing our own selves, and we are in the Lord. Paul said, it's no longer I, but Christ that lives within me. He was in Christ. And also in 2 Corinthians it says this, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are in the Lord. We are in the house. And so when we look at this, we see that we must be in the Lord. It all works together. Let's go on. Verse 9. Now that He has given the priorities of how the Passover was to be conducted, when the Passover was to be conducted, now he tells them how they are to actually eat the Passover. Verse 9 says this, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with its legs and with its entrails. Now, pay attention to this, because this says so much to you and to me. The first thing he says, do not eat it raw. How many of you have ever gotten a piece of meat and if you didn't freeze it and you just left it out, not in the fridge, and you haven't cooked it yet, is it completely hot? No, because it hasn't been cooked yet, right? And would you say if it's not frozen or in the fridge that it's completely cold? No. What would you call it then? If it's not hot nor cold, what would you call it? Lukewarm, that's right. God tells us not to eat it raw because that's a type of lukewarmishness. And we are not called to be lukewarm, are we? What does Scripture say? These things say the amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were either cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth. We are not to eat it raw because we are not to eat it lukewarm. When Christ is given to us, there's only one way that he prescribed that they eat it, and that was roasted in the fire. You eat it raw, that is another way of being lukewarm. We must eat it in the proper way. How many of you know lukewarm Christians? I do. I do. How do we know what a lukewarm Christian is? Because Jesus said it himself. He says, because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do you not know you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? They've said I am rich, have become wealthy, and I don't need anything. These are people that we would call self-sufficient. There's many lukewarm Christians out there. Well, I, I, you know, I really don't need Christ. I just ask him in, in, for help in certain areas of my life. Well, we're not to consume him in that way. We're not to uh, allow him to be lukewarm in our lives. We are to completely be sold out to him. Okay, so we are not to take him in a lukewarm way. We do not eat him raw. Then it says this nor boiled at all with water. And why does he say that? Why does he say that? How many of you have ever eaten something boiled rather than broiled? It takes away a lot of the flavor, doesn't it? It takes away a lot of the taste. But do you know why the Lord says it in this way? It's because when you have it boiled at water, that is almost self-explanatory. That means that it is watered down. And how many of you know that a watered-down Christian or a watered-down teacher teaching Christians, they're going to become watered-down Christians who believe a watered-down gospel, and it is not the true gospel. And do you know that when people take a watered-down gospel, they are not saved? But unfortunately, that's what many people are doing today. They are allowing themselves to be watered down. Why? Because they heap to themselves teachers that they hear, that they hear the things that they want to hear, and they love it. They're talking about health. Man, I want that. They're talking about wealth. You know it, I want that. They're talking about prosperity. Yeah, buddy, I want that too. And so what happens? Well, they're doing exactly what the Word says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. You see, they turn themselves from the truth. They don't want to follow the truth. They want to follow the watered-down gospel. But I don't know about you, but I want to be part of the true church. Uh, uh, Pastor Ryan was talking this morning about the great falling away, the apostasy. Do you know that there is a great apostasy that's going on now that the Scripture has talked about? And so many are falling away from the faith. They're falling away from the truth. And because of that, they really go to show in their lives that they, in fact, really are not saved. And I'm telling you something right now. you got to ask yourself the question, do I want to be where I'm being convicted of sin? Do I want to be where I am being told that I need to straighten up? Do I want to be where I'm kept on the straight path by the Lord because the people there are speaking truth? That should be the desire of the heart 
of the Christian man and woman of God. But they have all turned away, many. They turned their way away from the truth, and they follow fables, they follow fairy tales, they follow stories. But Christ says to us, you, be watchful in all things. Then he goes on to say this. This was how the lamb was to be taken. This is how the lamb was supposed to be consumed by every single one of them, roasted in the fire. So what does this mean? The children of Israel were given the proper way to eat the flesh of the Passover lamb, roasted with fire. Fire here signifies God's holy wrath, exercised in judgment. When Christ was on the cross, the holy fire of God judged him, and it consumed him. Do you get that? When you were talking about roasted in fire, there's only one way God prescribed for them to eat that lamb, and that was roasted in fire. Why? Because it was a prefigure. It was a pre-symbolism of what Christ would do on the cross. He would be roasted. And you say, prove it. That doesn't sound right. We don't hear him saying, I'm being roasted. No. But the Word of God does declare it. For those of you that don't know and have never ever read it, if you ever get a chance, go to Psalms chapter 22. Because it talks about Christ being on the cross. And what it does is explains what he was going through while he was on the cross. But I'm going to pull Psalms 22 up for you, and I want to show you exactly what Christ was feeling at that time. Psalms chapter 22, verses 14 through 15. This is what Christ was saying on the cross, even though it was written by David. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. They're not broken, it says. They're out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Look at that. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Those four lines right there tell me that he is under pretty intense heat, does it not? How else can his heart be just like wax melting within him? How in the world can his strength be dried up like a potsherd and his tongue clinging to his jaws? I would refer you to this scripture and say he was roasted by the judgment of God. And he was being judged for the sin of mankind. Even though he knew no sin, he never sinned, he was perfect, he was the perfect Lamb of God, spotless, with no wrong within him, but he took the sin of the world upon you and I, and when he did, he was being judged, he was being roasted by the judgment of God. His heart was like wax. It melted within him. And do you know that from here in Exodus, we're going to read from chapter 20 on, and it's going to talk a lot about the Ten Commandments, but not only that. It goes on to talk about the priest's garments. It goes on to talk about the, uh, the different feasts that were given. And it goes on to talk about the tabernacle and all of the elements of worship. And do you know that one of the first elements that you will see as you walk into the tabernacle is the altar? It is the altar. And the altar was there. 
that people would come in to offer sacrifices to God whenever they sinned. What was the altar like? Well, it was a brazen altar. It was made of bronze. And you know what happened? Whenever the people sinned against God, they would come and they would offer their different sacrifices on that altar. And you know what happened? All of them were roasted with fire and it was consumed by the Lord. And as it was, it was an acceptance of their sacrifices to God. And God accepted them. And they were right in the sight of God. Okay? So when you understand this, that the altar is the execution of God's judgment, that when somebody sinned, that lamb or that ram or that goat or whatever it was, when it was placed upon that altar, it was roasted in the fire and it was acceptable in God's sight. And I would say to you, on the cross, Christ was roasted and he was judged by God and his wonderful judgment. Isn't that a great thing for us? Because we escaped that judgment. And let me say another word concerning this, because you might say, well, in the New Testament, does it say that? Yeah, you got an altar there. And yeah, we, we, we see that, we believe that, that yeah, that they had to offer sacrifices and that they were roasted in the fire. Let me tell you something right now. If you do not accept Christ and have him be your substitute, do you not know that you will be roasted in the fire of God's judgment for all eternity? Revelation 20, 14, 15 says this, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is God's judgment. And you will be roasted in that fire if you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now I want to make a point here. Do you know that there are some false teachings that are going around? And about this time, whenever I've taught on this exact scripture in Exodus chapter 12, I always have to take a moment to point this out and this heresy, this scripture that is, that is being twisted to turn around to try to use, to, to give a false understanding of what happened to Christ when he died on that cross. Now they will say this, these false teachers, these heresies that they speak, they say this, Okay, when Christ died on the cross, he didn't finish salvation. What happened was, was when he died, he was dragged into hell, and Satan and his demons dragged him into hell, and they tortured him for three days and for three nights. He was tortured by the devil and his demons. And uh, you're asking me who said this? I'll tell you three right offhand that I know that I've heard with my own ears teach this. And these are false teachers and they are false, these are false doctrines they're teaching. Number one, Kenneth Copeland. He's the first person I heard it from. The second one was a man by the name of Fred Price. The third one was one by a woman who, who teaches, who is a false teacher. Her name is Joyce Meyer. These three all taught this false teaching. They taught this false teaching. They said that Jesus, when he died, they dragged him into hell and they tortured him. They tortured him for a long time, for those three days and three nights, and they just tortured him and tortured him, and he took the whole wrath of their wrath, and he went and took it all for you and I. The Bible doesn't say that. When Jesus, before he gave up his ghost, he said three words. What were those three words? 
It is finished. Christ finished the work on the cross. He finished the work on the cross. If not, if what they're saying is true, then what would have had to have happened is this. Number one, Jesus would have had to have died. He never would have issued those three words forth. It is finished. What would have happened is it would have read, not it is finished, but we would read this. He gave up his ghost and then he was dragged into the pit of hell. He was tortured for three days and three nights. And after that, he was resurrected by God the Father. And then after he came up, then he pronounced, it is finished. But did he do that? No, he did not. On the cross, he declared this, it is finished. And when he finished it, he took the roasting on that cross and he died on that cross for our sins, all of redemption, everything tied up with it, salvation, resurrection, which was to come. All of that was wrapped up in that one moment on the cross. And it was done for you and for me. Make no mistake about it. Anybody that teaches that is wrong in their doctrine, and if that is the case, they have a distorted view and they are teaching people the wrong way. Therefore, people are not believing the right way. They are not getting saved by the proper doctrine. They are lost in their sins. Are you following me? This is why I say they are false teachers. They are not teaching the truth of the word of God. You say, oh, but come on, that's just one verse. Listen, if there is doctrines that they're off on in that way, can you imagine the others that if we would sit down and listen to their doctrine, we would find probably a whole big grip of them. You got to understand something, that when you are teaching somebody about salvation, you need to teach them rightly what the Word of God says. If not, they won't truly be saved. He said, it was finished, it was finished on the cross, and he would be resurrected by God the Father and finish that entire, entire work as far as resurrection and eternal life. He finished the work on the cross. Amen? Okay, now let's go forward. Then he says this in the latter part. You are to eat also its head with its legs and its entrails. Well, what does that mean? We're to eat its head with its legs and its entrails. Very simply put, the children of Israel were to eat the lamb with its head, legs, and entrails, inwards. The head signifies wisdom, the legs signify movement, and the inwards signify the various inward parts of Christ's being. To eat the Passover lamb with the head, legs, and inwards is to take Christ as a whole in its entirety. As we eat him, we take his wisdom, we move with him, and we are changed inwardly. Do you understand that? We are to take Christ as a whole, not as a partial. We are to take him all. Now, it's just like us today. We are not to give only part of our life to him, right? No, he gave us his all. We are to give our all to him. Because many of you might say, all right, yeah, you know what? I can give him my Sundays and my Wednesdays, but how about the rest of the week? Do you give every part of your day to him? Do you give your pocketbook to him? Do you give your words to him? Do you give your life to him? Do you give uh, whatever it might be, your prayers to him? Whatever it might be, do you give everything to the Lord? Because some people might say, I, I feel comfortable giving him my church life, but uh, I don't want to give him uh, my thoughts. I don't want to give him 
those things I see on the computer. I don't want to give him my worldly TV shows. You see what I'm saying? We are to give him fully our whole being, our whole life. He gave us himself fully. We are to give to him fully. Verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with the fire. There again, reiterated. Nothing of the Passover lamb was to be left over until morning. This indicates that we are to receive Christ in a full way, not partially. Do not allow anything of Christ to be left over. Rather, take him in full. Take him in full. Okay? Let's go forward. Verse 11. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. You see that? They were to eat it with their belt on their waist, sandals on their feet, and staff in their hand. Okay? They were to eat it that way. Well, what does all this mean? What, what is God trying to say through this? As the children of Israel were eating the Passover lamb, they were like an army. Exodus 12, 51 says that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. Now, many Christians today realize that they should be an army. Do you know that we are formed as an army, an army for the Lord? Now, let me explain this to you so you understand it in a very basic way. When they came to the Lord, when they cried out, when they were being afflicted for all of those years, it says they cried out, their cry came to God, and he sent them a deliverer called Moses, right? Okay, now understand this. There is no way that they could have done that. If they themselves individually tried to escape the bondage, Pharaoh would have had them killed, right? Pharaoh had a massive army. He had tens of thousands, probably even hundreds of thousands of man, men in his army. It would have been impossible for them, even with all of their men, probably to fight against them because all they were was bricklayers building cities and they had taskmasters over them. It would have been impossible. So up to that point, you don't see them being gathered together as an army. They were a labor force. Are you following me? Now understand this. Them coming out of Egypt is not done by them. They could do nothing to come out of bondage. Nothing at all. Just like you, when you were unsaved and you heard the words of life, you could do nothing. You could not pay for it. You could not uh, do good works to obtain it. No. All you had to do was one thing. Trust in the Lord your God. Proclaim Him as Lord. Turn from your sins, right? That's all you could do. Because you could not escape the enemy. You could not escape Satan. He had a grip on you. He had you where he wanted you. It was only God that could truly bring you out of bondage. Is that not right? So in understanding that, we understand the Israelites, they could do nothing. But when God did bring them out of bondage, that was a different case. And so it is with us as Christians today also. Do you know that when they finally came out and Pharaoh said, go, take everybody with you and get out of my land, they did? But do you know, until they crossed the Red Sea, God had to be their deliverer. He had to be. He had to be. That's exactly what he was. It says that when they got to the Red Sea, God came and he became a shield to them, a pillar of fire. It says he separated the Israelites from the Egyptian army 
And you know what happened? God opened the Red Sea for them. They went through and they walked through that dry land through the Red Sea. And it says they went out. They all went through the Red Sea. When almost all of them went through, it says that he brought down that wall and Pharaoh and all of his army went through the Red Sea chasing after them. What did God do? God allowed the water to come upon Pharaoh and all of his army and he destroyed them. He killed every single one of them. But you know what happened? After that, God brought them to a point where he saved them. But after that, then, then the forming of the army became important. You know why? Because as they went into the wilderness, going towards the promised land, the good land, the land of Canaan, the Bible says the first ones that came out to come against them was called the Amorites. You know what happened? Then the army became important. Because now God says, you know what? I brought you out. And now, now that you're separated from the world Egypt, and I build a barrier in the Red Sea to where you can't go back, you are mine, you're going to go forward, and now you're going to fight, and you're going to fight, and I'm going to be with you. And you know what happened? That's exactly what they did. Do you know it says that as Joshua and all of the troops of Israel was battling the Amorites, it says that Moses went to the top of a hill, and it says that as Moses raised his hand with the staff in his hand, it says that the Israelites prevailed over their enemy. Then it says when his hands became too heavy and he lowered down that staff, it says then the enemy prevailed over the Israelites. So you know what happened? The Bible says Aaron and Ur both came alongside Moses and they both lifted up his hands. As they saw what was going on and how God was doing it, they lifted up his hands. And the Israelites prevailed and they beat and defeated their enemies. As Christians, you know that when salvation comes, God is with us, but now we have to fight our battles. That's why the Bible says fight the good fight of what? Faith, that's right. We are now soldiers. You ever wonder why the song says... Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, right? With the cross of Jesus going on before, right? We are an army. We are fighting the battle of faith. We are not fighting it against flesh and blood as the world proclaims, but we are fighting against the unseen, the principalities, the powers. And I will tell you this, God would not give us armor unless we were going into battle. We are armies. You are an army of the Lord. You are soldiers in the Lord's army. Isn't that a great thing? But do you know one day when God raptures us, we're going to go to be with the Lord. And you know what? When we come back the second time with the Lord, the Bible says that we're going to be on horses and we're going to be the army that follows him. But do you know what? We're going to be inconsequential because the Bible says out of his mouth goes that sharp two-edged sword and he slays all those that are not his. But we are still his army. You are a soldier fighting a battle. And every day, let me tell you, I would love to tell you that there are times when the enemy is going to not pay attention and he's not going to mess with you in one way or another throughout your day, but I can't do that. You are a soldier. And you know what? You are expected to fight. But the way we fight is not the way the world fights. Because you might say, oh yeah, I just heard it from Pastor Len. I can go up and smack somebody and fight them. I'm an army. I'm a soldier. It's not what I'm saying. That's not the way we fight. We fight on our knees praying to the Lord. We fight on our knees 
praying to the Lord and we fast. We read the word that when he comes in like a flood, we do just what Jesus did when Satan said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We fight with the word. We claim the word. We, we, we give scripture because that is what pleases God is his word, the living word, his son, Jesus Christ. So we are an army and we are Christians fighting the good fight of faith. And so when he told them to eat with the belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and staff in your hand, they were prepared to go out as the army of the Lord. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. For I am the Lord. That was so awesome. Pastor Ryan pointed out that's exactly what people have done. They have made their own God. And in Egypt, that's exactly what they did. Like take, for instance, the Nile to turn to blood. What they did was they believed in Happy, who was the bullheaded God. He was the God of the Nile itself. And when God went and executed judgment and turned the Nile into blood, he was condemning Happy, their God, the God of the Nile. And he executed judgment upon them, showing them that Hopi wasn't indeed the true God who had control over the Nile, but that the Lord God was the true God. When the frogs came out, that was them going to their God who was called Heket. And Heket was the God of uh, Egypt. And when it invaded all the land of Egypt, they were looking to Heket. To take away all the frogs. They were looking to Hecate to protect them from all the frogs. But they couldn't do it. It was only as Moses pleaded on behalf of Pharaoh and all of Egypt were they taken away. And they saw it. When the lice and the gnats, the third plague came. And it says Aaron smote the dust of the earth. It was a definite strike against Geb, the god of the earth. Geb was the God of the earth, their God. When Aaron struck that lice, there was nothing that any of the magicians, the soothsayers, none of them could do. And so they called out to Moses, and Moses pleaded on their behalf to God. When the flies came out, Kepri was their God. He was the God of creation and rebirth, and he was a man with the head of a fly. That was their God. And they looked to him, but he was of no help. Kepri couldn't do anything. And it was only God who was able to take the flies away. The plague of the livestock. The plague of the livestock was one big one. It was the sickness of the Egyptian cattle. And it would have been seen as a threat to their food supply. Cattle were also viewed as sacred animals and the deities, Happy and Hathor. They were normally depicted as having the head of a cattle. But yet God struck all the, the cattle, all the livestock, with disease, and there was nothing that their gods could do. They were helpless. Only Jehovah, the God of our God, of the Bible, prevailed. And when boils came, when boils came, Sekhmet was a goddess with the power over sickness and disease. Sunu was the god of pestilence, and Isis was the god of health, medicine, and healing. Yet none of them were able to take away the boils. None of them were able to get rid of them. When they prayed to them, it was useless because they could do nothing. 
And they saw the power, the glory, and the majesty of the God of the Bible. And when hail and fire came, Newt, the God of sky, and Set, the God of storms, would have been the object of this plague. Yet when the hail and the fire came down and they prayed, it was of no use because they were defenseless against God and his mighty power. And when the locusts came to eat, Osiris was the ruling god over the crops of the land of Egypt. The plague of locusts brought the utter destruction of all remaining plant life. And so when they cried out, there was nothing that could be done. And when darkness came, when darkness came, it was a strike against their god, the sun, the god of the sun, Ra. When the sun was struck and darkness was brought about, Ra was defenseless against God. He could do nothing. When the people saw time and time again that their gods were defenseless, they saw the true and the living God. To the point that when it came, darkness came, they said, let them go, Pharaoh, let them go. Don't you see how powerful their God is? Let them go. But he would not. But he would not. And so the tenth plague came, which was the death of the firstborn. This final plague affected the two mightiest gods in the entire kingdom. And that was Pharaoh himself and his son. Pharaoh was viewed as a living God, as was his son. God demonstrated in the taking of, his, of the son of Pharaoh that he held the power and the authority over all of Egypt and more importantly, over Pharaoh himself. And this is why we tell you, you cannot form your own God. And even Christians today, if they are true believers, God will break down their walls just like he did Jericho. And all those walls of wickedness and wrong believing, all of those will be broken down. Because if they are the Lord's, he will bring them to true understanding of who he is. And so when God struck all of those deities, all of their so-called lowercase g, gods, that God was showing them his mighty power. And he was still extending an offer of grace and love. And what we're going to read is that some of the Egyptians did believe. If you read in Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, you will see that some of them went out with Moses and the Israelites. So God's purpose was being fulfilled in everything that was being done with those plagues. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment, for I am the Lord. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We explained this in the sermon last week, so I'm not going to go into detail about it. But there is one thing that I do want to point out to you in understanding how the lamb was to be eaten and about how they were to eat that lamb. Do you know that none of the bones on the lamb were to be broken? And it goes on to say that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. It says this, In one house, their house, it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house nor shall you break one of its bones. Do you know that when the soldiers, the Roman soldiers saw Jesus, they literally broke the legs of the other two thieves, one on his left and one on his right. But when they came to Jesus, it says that they saw that he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. What did they do? They put a spear on his side, right? 
Okay. Why was that done? Well, it was done because the Bible says in Exodus 12, as well as in other portions of Scripture, that none of his bones shall be broken. Because that's what God required in Exodus chapter 12. So none of Jesus' bones could be broken during that time. Are you following me? Okay. So how do we understand this? Well, the fact that Christ's legs were not broken signifies that in Christ, the Passover lamb, there is something unbreakable and indestructible. This unbreakable and indestructible element is his eternal life. The Roman soldiers and Jewish people could come together to put Christ on the cross, but they could not break his eternal life. Now, you're saying, what does bones and life have to do together? That doesn't make sense to me at all. But actually, do you know the word says that bones are life? You say to me, prove it. Okay, I will. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. This is what it says. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, a bone, right? And closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made or he built it into a woman and he brought her to the man. She was that bone, that rib, that bone. God builded her into woman and she was that man's life, his partner, the one he would come together with in covenant. Do you now understand why the bones could not be broken? Christ, his eternal life, will never be broken. He will live forever. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. That is the hope of every single one of us as Christians, that we will receive that eternal life. He is that life. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. For your word is truth and your word is life. And as your word has been given today, we pray that it become a reality in our own lives. That we live according to your word, Father. That as your word has touched us, Lord, that it would make an everlasting change in every single one of us. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are interested in visiting the Wild Ministries, we are located at 5700 South Country Club Way, Tempe, Arizona, 85283. Our Sunday service begins at 10 a.m. and ends at 12 noon. Our Bible study services are on Wednesdays beginning at 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. For families with children, the Well Ministries has classes available for children 6 months to 17 years old. If you have any questions, you can contact the senior pastor, Len Andrews, at 602-460-2195 or the Associate Pastor Ryan Reed at 602-434-4073. Come drink at the well. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. Goodbye and God bless.